So before I let you go down, I, I want to use Mitch as Exhibit A today. Could you show us your shirt, Mitch? This is, this is one of my favorite shirts that he wears. The church has left the building. How can that be? How can that be? The church has left the building. He wears it every once in a while. It's like, but isn't this the building? I mean, isn't it when we say we're going to church, aren't we talking about this place? I actually have had people come to me, especially when we first started the church, and said, sorry, but we can't go to your church yet until you have a building. So apparently that made it legitimate, okay? Um, we weren't really existent before that time. Um, but, you know, what does that mean? Is that what the Bible teaches? We're going to talk about that today as we continue our series on what we believe. Um, the series is based on investigations of the past. We, we look in at over 2,000 years when people read the Bible for what it says, not for what they want it to say. When they look at the original intent of the authors, they come out surprisingly at pretty much the same place. as our. And we have that written down in our own statement of faith. And so we're basically going through our statement of faith. And you, again, can follow along with us. All you have to do is go to our website, click on who we are, and then click on Statement of Faith. Today, we're going to be talking about the church. We've already covered well, quite a few things now, huh? We've talked about the Bible, the Godhead, Jesus, and salvation. Um, next week, we're going to take a break. We're going to have a very special service. It's going to be Thanksgiving week, so we're going to have a special um, time of giving thanks to a psalm and a, and a testimony. I think it will be, I'm, I'm sure it will be a very special time, so I hope you can all be here. But as for today, um, we're jumping into the church. So let's go ahead and take a look at what the statement of faith says about the church. And this will be our starting point. We believe the true church is composed of those who are truly members of God's family, and only they are eligible for membership in the church. Water baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances to be observed by the church during this present age, but they not, are not a means of salvation. So let's start off and say, what is the true church? Let's start with the word church. The English word for church comes from the Greek kyriakos, but of course you all knew that. It means belonging to the Lord, and it stands for another Greek word that you may have seen if you've hung around church a lot, um, ecclesia. Um, from which we get ecclesiastical, which means an assembly. So it basically means an assembly. There's a word that's used, and we'll see that a little bit later in Acts 2, it's called a koinonia, or a fellowship. It's a gathering of people. And it's interesting, they, they use it in kind of a broad way. Like, for example, in Acts 19, they use the same word, an assembly, for an assembly of people that are coming together in a town meeting. And later, in earlier, actually in Acts 7, Stephen is talking about the history of Israel, and he uses it for Israel when they came out of Egypt as an assembly. So it can really be any assembly of people, any fellowship of people, any gathering of people who belong to God, but it is the most important gathering or assembly that you can have if people are really belonging to God, because it is, therefore, his church. Now, it's interesting, early on, the original church is in Jerusalem, right? And they called it the church. But then later it expanded to Samaria and it expanded to um, Syria and other places around, all around the globe. And they still call it the church. So which is which? Is this the church or are all the other ones the church? How do we figure that out? Yes. Okay, they both are. So it's, uh, this is the idea. It's almost like every church that believes in the Bible, and we'll see this today, 
if they're, if they're followers of Christ and they're teaching the things that we're teaching in our series, then they are the true church. Um, and it doesn't matter. They, they may differ on different um, things, but for the most part, they're at the core, they believe. So we're all like this gigantic family, the, most, the largest, most multicultural, multi-ethnic movement in entire world history. Nothing even comes close to it. That's the church. And you're part of it. Sometimes they're like first cousins and sometimes like third cousins. They may be different than us, but they're all part of the family. And so that's the church universal. We're the church local. We're the local church that represents, in a small way, that big universal body. But what's the true church? Based on our studies over the last month, we have learned that true followers of Christ base everything on what the Bible teaches. Therefore, the true church only teaches what the Bible teaches, which assumes that there is a false church out there. There are churches that do not teach the things that we're saying. Sometimes they do that to accommodate culture. Sometimes they do that to make themselves feel good, you know, kind of that name it, claim it mentality. Sometimes they water down the deity of Christ and the teachings of Scripture and obedience to Christ just to take care of people around them. Sometimes they change the whole doctrine. And it gets really strange. But when those things happen, it's not the true church. The true church, and this is the key, is made up of those that are in God's family. So that's the next thing we're going to look at is only true members of God's family are eligible for membership. One of the verses we've thrown around a lot the last few weeks is Romans 8:15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, Aramaic was the language that the Jewish people used among themselves, and Abba is kind of like the same as Papa or Daddy. That means if he's your daddy, he's mine, what does that make us? We're all family. If you come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you're adopted as his kid. And so the, the thing that really marks us more than anything else is not just that we're a gathering, but that we're adopted members of the family of Jesus Christ. That's pretty cool. So you, and we've talked about this before, you can be closer actually in relationship with somebody who knows the Lord than with your own family member who doesn't. You are spiritually bound together in blood. And so that's what the Bible teaches, and that's where we start. The big question, of course, they ask is, have you been adopted into God's family? We've talked last week, we talked again about the ABCs of the gospel, and, and they're always so important to talk about. You know, do you admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place and rose again? Have you chosen to surrender your life and follow him? That's how a person enters in. That's the basics of it. And if you haven't, we pray that you'd come and talk to us about that today. If you have, then you're part of the family. So what's the importance of meeting on Sunday morning if we're just all part of the family? Can't we just do that wherever we're at? You know what? Did you know, and, and some of you moms and dads, and some of you kids, you know moms and dads, what do they like to do in the holidays? Gather the kids together. What do you think God likes? He likes his family together. Sunday morning is family reunion time. It's the time we all get together. There are some families, they get together for lunch or whatever on Sunday afternoons, they have a family day. This is our family day. 
The Bible doesn't say it has to be today. It leaves the door open. You can go on all different kinds of days. But the main example we have in Scripture is it happened on Sunday. It became known as the Lord's Day because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so it's a celebration of that, and that's why we do it on Sundays. Uh, so that's, if you ever wondered, that's why. But what about formal membership in a local church? Is that right or wrong? The answer is both and neither. You know, I mean, it's, once again, the Bible doesn't directly address that issue. Um, what, it, what it does say is it gives different examples, and we've taken a look at that, and we've decided not to have formal membership. Some of the reasons why is, is it's not clearly stated in the Bible. It can easily become very complicated and political. Um, and most churches in history, um, even today, most churches don't have formal leadership. But in the Western world, they typically do. And there are some real benefits to having you know, membership. We live in a fallen world. It's, nothing's perfect, but it was a decision that we decided to make. Uh, but then how do we, if, if we don't have formal membership, how do we coordinate things with everybody? Uh, we've had to work through some of those things, and nothing's perfect, but we find that there's some things that are permissible as we just look at the Bible and say, what are the basic principles here? I want to just quote to you from our, um, our bylaws, and I'd encourage you to read our bylaws sometime. They're right next to the statement of faith. But this is one statement that we said. We do not have formal membership, but we expect those true followers to have a clear testimony agree with our vision, mission, values, statement of faith, and live God-honoring lives. We also hope that they will regularly attend our worship services, join a small group, participate in outreach, and give generously. The only ordinances we recognize are water baptism and the Lord's Supper that we'll talk about in a little bit. So you can see it's basically we're family, and we operate like a family. But we have to have some accountability, right? Or people will just go off and do all sorts of things. And so... We do have a leadership structure, and we want you to abide by some of these basic things. And if somebody begins acting in ways that are really opposite that, then we have to address those issues. How do we address that? Who's the ones who address these things? The Bible, again, is fairly open. It, it says some things that are really important. Um, one is it says that you should have godly men that are primarily in leadership. Now, there's different names for them that are used in the Bible, but the one that's most commonly used today and that we use in our church is elders. The elders are the ones, which literally means bearded one, by the way. I was looking at Jeremy. It literally means bearded one. Um, so uh, only one of our elders is bearded. But, um, but it, it, you know, we've talked about this recently because we've just put on elders. But it, the assumption is that these are guys that are well-trained and meet elder qualifications, meet certain qualifications. They're walking with the Lord. They're not perfect, but they're walking with the Lord. And... Of those, there's, there's two kinds of elders that the Bible talks about. And one of those are those that, um, those that are vocational, those that are working on a regular basis. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5, verse um, 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, in other words, payment, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so there's precedence for that. There's some of us that are full-time, we call the ones that are full-time, Clifton, Mitch, and I, the pastors. And there's precedence for that. Um, the Bible, Jesus, did you know Jesus was paid? And the, the, guy, the disciples were all paid. Even Paul, even though he would travel, and when he ran out of money or when he was starting churches, which sometimes work on the side, bivocational, uh, as a leather maker, the ideal always seems to be to have people that are paid as much as they can be so they can put their focus on ministry. But then the other people are avocational. They're volunteers. 
And it's interesting, the Bible seems, you know, really describes both. Some are working, full, you know, this is your job, and other ones are volunteering. So you've got kind of a mix, kind of a hybrid. And it doesn't say exactly how to name them or anything else, but we've called pastors and then the elders. Um, we have Dan Phipps in the back there, and we have Eric uh, Copeland, and, um, and Kirk Calhoun's in Michigan right now with family. But those are our elders. So that's kind of the guys that all come together, and they're the ones that oversee the church. Now, when we talk about them overseeing the church, how do they, how do, they do that? Just a couple things that I want to say is that they, they work as a team, even though they have different roles that they play. Pastors are basically hired under the elders' oversight to run the ministry of the church in specific ways. And then the elders are there to pray for them, counsel them during difficult decisions, review the budget and business decisions, make sure the pastors are keeping to the Bible, the mission, the visions, the values of the church. They also provide pastoral roles in the church through prayer, pastoral duties, like communion, visitation, counseling, and other things that they might do. We, we work together. We try to make decisions by unanimity, but sometimes we have to make them by consensus. We're working together as a team. Um, pastors, because it's their full-time job, they don't have a time limit. But elders, we have them go two terms if they want. They can go two consecutive terms, three each, so that's six years. And then we ask them to take a year off for sabbatical. That's pretty much how we run. It's a little bit of review of what we've talked about recently. Um, and you can look into our bylaws for more of this information. But just as a summary, I think pastors do most of the planning and elders do the pruning. They edit us. They work alongside of us. They support us and encourage us in the process. Um, when it comes to you guys in the annual budget and who, who's going to be an elder, we run everything by you guys. We, aren't, we don't have everybody voting on it, but we tell you everything that's going on on a regular basis, and we expect your input. We give you a full month before we finalize the budget. We give you a full month before we finalize a pastor or an elder. And so that's just, and then we listen to what you say, and we've actually held back in the past on things because we take seriously your input. In general, I think we could say that in leadership, Hebrews 13, 7 says that you should honor your elders. You should take care of them. Um, I don't have an iPhone 13. Um, <laughs> no, but, but you, should, you should be respectful of us and encouraging us and supporting us. But at the same time, you also should be holding us accountable. And that's what is missing sometimes in churches. There's an interesting passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 through 20. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is very serious stuff. You don't come and break a charge against any of us because we've gone through the ringer getting to where we're at. You know, we've been trained. We've been you know, vetted. You guys have gone through this. We have all sorts of interviews and everything else. And we're trying to do the best we can. But if there's a problem, please come and talk to us. Get some others to come with you, at least one other person. And as for those who persist in sin, it says you're to rebuke them in the presence of all. The context is in the presence of the other elders so that the rest may stand in fear. So you guys got to hold us accountable. And at the same time, we have to hold you accountable. Matthew 18 talks about if you have a conflict with one another, then you need to talk and try to work that out. And if it's not working, you bring somebody else with you. If it's not working, you bring it to us. And we'll help you work it out. If it's really, really serious, never had to do this, hope we don't. Uh, but 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 through 12 says you have to ask them to stop coming to church. Sounds a little bit like families, right? When we have family problems, say, I don't want you coming this year if you're going to, you know, get drunk and start fights and stuff. Um, and church has to take care of family. It's family business. And so we have to do those things. 
the Bible also has, and this is really interesting with the leaders, is that Ephesians 4 says that the main job of the leaders is not to tell you what to do. The main job of the leaders is to train you to do that. We all do it as a team. We can do so much more that way. That's how Jesus did ministry. He trained others, and then he just turned them loose. I can only do so much. You know, the three of us as pastors, the six of us as elders, we can only do so much, but if everybody jumped in, everybody had a piece of it, that's pretty exciting. This is your church. You can have a huge impact in all sorts of ways, so we're training you to do the ministry. We have deacons um, informally. Deacons basically just means, you know, leaders in the church, um, ministers or uh, servant leaders. And it would relate to people that run our, uh, primarily our small group leaders, our men's ministries leaders, our women's ministries leaders, our children's ministries, all those. Again, we try to make sure that they're really solid people. They can be men or women in this role. Um, the men are at the top because that's the way God designed it, but the women can be involved in this too. Sometimes people ask that. They say, you know, we're not going to go into a lot of detail, but why do you have it this way where you have the men in that position? The only reason why is because the Bible says so. Passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 makes it quite clear that that's God's design. It also makes it quite clear in passages like Ephesians 5 that God has designed man to be the leader of the, the, the household with his wife. It doesn't say he's supposed to be an ogre. doesn't say he's supposed to be doing this in an improper fashion. But what it says is that that's God, you know, he made us. He knows how he made us. He knows how he wants us to operate. He knows how we're best going to operate, better than we do. And that's how he says we're supposed to operate. And I've seen it. It works best when it's that way, but only if it's done properly. Now, now let's back off for a second. People say, well, then they're not equals. Well, that's not true, really. And, and let's go back to what we've been learning. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all co-equal. And yet God the Son and God the Spirit voluntarily submit to the leadership of God the Father. Because somebody has to lead. But they're all equal. They just have different roles. And yet they work so collaboratively with one another that they're always on the same page. That's who we want to be. We want to be so concerned about the other person in leadership that we, we value their, what, what they need more than we do ourselves. When you have that kind of attitude, you end up working together as a team. And so that's what we seek to do as a church. Finally, one more question about the whole membership thing um, and how we run and how we operate as church and ministry. We are an independent, non-denominational church. What in the world does that mean? Um, it, it just means that we aren't affiliated with anybody or anything. Uh, is that, again, right or wrong? The Bible doesn't really say. If you go to a passage like Acts chapter 15, they actually had churches that would get together. They, all the early churches got together, local churches, to make a, a very difficult decision. So there's principle for working together with others. And we have gone to other churches like our own to ask for advice and counsel and support, and we will continue to always do that. But we've just chosen not to get involved in any specific formal organization. Um, there's some principle for them, but there's some obvious political downside to that too. And so that's the place that we've gone. That's where we've landed. Did you know all this about us? 
Maybe not. Some of you may be visiting today, too, but it gives you a little bit of a feel for who we are. Now, I, I want to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper. We talk about that a lot when we do that, but I want to just give a little overview because those are ordinances. It's, in other words, the Bible, God, Jesus ordered us to do these things. So what do we mean when we do them? Again, the Greek word for baptism, we've talked about this a lot during our series in different ways, means a washing. So when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit washes you and comes to live inside of you. That's how you become a Christian. Physical baptism in the Bible immediately follows salvation. And that's one of the places where we've dropped the ball in our culture. As soon as you, you are not saved by baptism, but you should be baptized as an expression of your new faith. And so it should happen as soon as you can. I mean, it doesn't always. But that's really what it is. It's, it's basically an identification. And, and again, in the early church, Every example we have but one is they would all get together as a family when somebody would be baptized. It was like an initiation, right? It's like, I'm one of you. And so it's really exciting. Now that we have the baptismal here, it's really exciting to be able to do that. Uh, people ask about how we, we do baptisms. Um, we do them by full immersion. And the reason we do that is that seems to be the clear example that we have in the Bible. Um, people will sometimes say things, well, what if I was sprinkled or whatever? And it's like, you know, man... You know how difficult it is to get up and speak on Sunday morning. Public speaking is tough. Don't bother me with that. Right? <laughs> you know, there's all these different questions, right? Um, and, and yet they're all important, really. And so what do we do with that? What, what do we do with that? And, and the thing is, is, first thing I'd say is what's most important is your heart. A lot of this is symbolism. And we don't want to get legalistic. Some of these are disputable matters. It's almost like... If we're going to say, let's do baptism exactly 100% right, then we don't do it in a baptismal because that's not what they did in the Bible. So if you're baptized in a baptism, baptismal, time to do it over again. Okay? So we're not saying that. But, but what we are saying is that we think that the best way is to be full immersion, and we'll leave that up between you and the Lord um, in that kind of a situation. I, I did one time. There was a lady. She was 89 years of age. She was in a convalescent home, and I was... Um, I was preaching in a convalescent when I was a young, young man, and uh, she wanted to be baptized. She'd come to the Lord. She couldn't, she couldn't be fully immersed. She, her health was just, she was so frail, but she wanted to be baptized before she died. So it was a decision of, well, do we sprinkle her, or do we, do we fully immerse her? And that's the only time I've ever done that. But obviously, it just shows that, I mean, we don't want to be legalistic, but I think the example that we should be pursuing is, is full immersion. And, and the, the other thing, though, that I think that is a, is a bigger issue is being baptized as an infant um, because the very idea of being baptized is that you're expressing your faith and infants can't express their faith. Although we had one earlier here. But that, you know, there's, um, there's exam different examples, but, but they can't. And so if you were baptized as an infant, then I'd strongly encourage you to be baptized as an adult. When you're baptized as an infant, it's more of your parents dedicating you. And it's interesting, Jesus, both Jesus and the, the scribes and Pharisees and the different leaders in the church would actually take babies and pray blessings over them. And, and we call that a dedication. And we love doing that. It's so fun to do that. So if you have a baby or a young one that, that want, you want this to be dedicated before the church and we can all pray for them, that's awesome. Let's do that. Um, but otherwise, we would encourage you, uh, if you were baptized as an infant, to be baptized as an adult by your own, on your own volition. Um, so really encourage you to do that. So those are, are some of the basics there with, with baptism. Um, the Lord's Supper, it's a regular reminder of the fact that we have been spiritually and physically baptized and we are to live and surrender in our lives to Christ. 
Uh, the church teaches that we use something, some, some churches teach that something supernatural happens to the elements when they come into your body. We don't teach that because the Bible doesn't. And some teach that um, nothing happens. And like baptism, I, my experience is that there's some kind of a spiritual experience that accompanies these. I just can't put my finger on it. And the Bible seems to allude to that, but it doesn't really ever pin it down. So it's mostly symbolic, but there does seem to be something that's going on. Um, we partake in unleavened bread, and people ask, we take juice, but the Bible talks about taking wine. So um, is, it, is it taking? Is it working? Um, it, it's symbolic again, and that's the main thing. You, know, you want to know the reason why churches don't, um, you know, they, they, take, they don't take um, wine? You want to know what it is? Very profound. Alcoholism in America. That, that's really the truth. There's so much alcoholism in our country that churches have strayed away from it because they want to be respectful to those that struggle in that area. Um, and so we've just continued that tradition in our church. A lot less expensive, too. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so uh, how, here's a question for you. How often should we do the Lord's Supper? People ask me that every once in a while. Some of you guys do. How often should we do this? And... If we're, the only example we have in the Bible is every day. Acts 2, they were taking it every day. So that becomes a little bit of a problem to, to do that, but that's how they did it. Now, again, we don't want to be legalistic about it because they were taking it in small groups as well as in large gatherings, and it doesn't seem like they always did that regularly from that point on. And from that point on, we don't really have a clear example. Um, the idea of taking it every week, I've done that, and I like that. Um, the idea of doing it every month, I've done that, and I like that. You know, they, they both have their benefits, and I think we went with every month because most churches do that, and there's, there's this thing where if you take it too often, it kind of, you know, it, it kind of loses its meaning, you know, you just kind of go through the, the motions, but if you take it too, if you don't take it often enough, it loses its purpose altogether. And so we've tried to find a balance, but we also... It's not like we say that you just have to do it every month. We actually encourage people to do it. And I know I've done it a couple times, even recently, with people in small groups. So we have it going on at various times within our church. But that's the time we regularly do it as a whole church family. Here's one for you. One of the difficulties with the Lord's Supper is that it's supposed to be taken by true believers, uh, those who have confessed their sins and are doing their best to live in peace with one another. It can be dangerous if not. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Fortunately, we haven't lost too many people this year. And I don't think that's been true throughout history. But apparently it was true at the very beginning of the church, and it made it very obvious how important this is to God. So when we take communion, it needs to be important. Some churches will only allow members to take it. It's called a close communion. Um, we're not a close communion. We don't have membership, formal membership. Others, others will open it up to everybody and not say anything. And that's extremely dangerous based on this passage. So that's why you'll hear us when we do communion. We'll reference this because we want you to know that this is serious business when you take communion. You really need to know the Lord, and you really need to be prepared in your heart. So... Um, yeah, that basically, that basically gives us an idea of what we do. Now, what I want to do now is look at some practical applications or implications from this. Um, 
we've learned some things here, and there's a passage in Scripture, and it was at the embryonic stages of the church, so there's some things that have changed. It's not, it, it's not like this has to be done exactly this way, but there are principles here that I think are great guidelines for us. And I want to end today by looking at this practically, and, and hopefully you'll find something that maybe you can hang on to in some area that you can grow in today. Let me read to you Acts chapter 2, verses 20, 41 through 47, which is the first and the most descriptive example that we have of the church. It says, so those who received his word were baptized. Peter had preached. They were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. By the way, the fellowship there is another word for church, koinonia at that point. So it's, it's more of a formal term. To the breaking of bread and, to, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So let's look at a few things here. Baptism. Um, I don't think I have to say anything more than this. If you haven't been baptized, you need to be. We have some people that are interested in baptism. We'll probably have a baptism within the next month. Please come and tell us if you'd like to be one of those persons. The second thing is the apostles' teaching. The fellowship we've referenced is more of a formal term. But the apostles' teachings, you need to stop and think, what, what were they teaching? And I think the best example is what Jesus says in Matthew 20, verse 20. He says, he was te teach them to observe all that I commanded you. So Jesus taught the apostles, and they taught the people what Jesus had taught them. And then they wrote it down for that we would know for sure what we should know. And we've gone back in the past. You can go back and look at the passage on the Bible, on the, our studies on the Bible, why we know that this is a supernatural book and we need to follow what it says about our lives. And so how do we do that? We can do that in such a variety of ways, but the main way you do it is not really here on Sunday morning so much as in interpersonal relationships. Um, one of the main things they were big on in the church is just passing it down interpersonally. 2 Timothy 2.2, and what you have heard, this is Paul, from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust a faithful man will be able to teach others also. Peter appears to have trained Barnabas. Barnabas discipled Paul. Paul is now discipling Timothy and says, pass it on. Especially with the leadership, you can pass it on and pass it on and pass it on. That's how Jesus set up ministry. Um, we had, do that at our church. We start with the core of discipleship. We had a course last week that just explains who we are and what we're doing. And then we want to get you involved. We take people through the walk, which is a basic course for those that are new believers or seekers or people that knew, know the Lord just to know what it is that we believe in. Gives you the foundation. It's just a five-week course. Um, we also have Next Steps, which is a training process for those that are growing their faith, want to teach others, and are moving into leadership. Um, we, we have a course called Aspire for those that have taken that course, trained others, and are looking to be elders. And then we have multiple other studies. We're, we're going to be starting something called Mountain View U, which is almost like an old-fashioned adult Sunday school class. It'll be a course on a number of important topics, more academic, that we'll be having uh, soon, hopefully within the next year. Um, and then we have ministries, small groups for men, Clifton reference it, for men, for women, for home groups, and we have ministries for children and for youth. And those are all teaching opportunities that we do passing on the basics of what Jesus taught and beyond that, and helping people to grow personally in their relationship with the Lord. 
on Sunday mornings when we preach. If, you know, people have talked about this too. Sometimes churches, perhaps most churches, teach through topical sermons. They'll take a topic like love um, or something heavy like abortion or they'll, or they'll take somebody like Paul and they'll do a study in their life or they'll take something like what we're doing here and go through the doctrines. Is that wrong to do it that way? It's not wrong. In fact, it's actually very good because, for example, if we, if we didn't do this, we would never get through this material. This is really important stuff as long as you base it on what the Bible says. If you get away from the Bible, you get into trouble. And the problem is, is if you do this all the time, you end up coming back to the same things all the time. It becomes very subjective. And guess who becomes the authority? The person speaking. And so we have to be very careful of that. And so that's why we do primarily what has been called expository preaching. Expository basically means to expose. We expose the meaning of the Bible verse by verse within the context of a book. It's a comprehensive explanation of the scriptures. It's like studies on books or portions of books, almost like you know, book studies. Uh, but as we do that, we're looking, here's the key, for the original intent of the author. See how important that is? Because otherwise you go all over the place. What was it that they were trying to say? What, get to, it gets us back to what was Jesus originally saying? We can know if we look very carefully. I mean, I, we start off and we study this. We study the grammar, the context, the historical setting. Um, carefully analyze and, and objectively analyze it so that the intent when I preach on Sunday morning, when Clifton preaches, is not for you to hear our opinion. It's for you to hear what that passage is saying. We want to get ourselves out of it as much as possible. And so that's why we primarily go through that. And in the process, we touch most topics, too, because it will touch it. So those are things I just let you know about so you understand, but also who you listen to. Be careful who you listen to. If they're always saying, I, 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 me, 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 and they're always talking about topical things, be careful. Make sure that whoever you listen to is being very careful and saying what the Bible says, that it's based on what the Bible says, not on what that person says. I want to group together a couple things here. Breaking of bread, prayers, signs and wonders. Got to pray. Got to spend time together. Got to take communion. Those are just things that are important. Prayer is very important. If you want to be on our prayer team, let us know. Um, we still see miracles. This last week, my friend Sam, um, Sam Kuniap in Nigeria, his, his son, his son-in-law, who's a doctor, was kidnapped. And they thought they were going to have to pay a ransom. Our prayer team got on it. They prayed. Within hours, he was released. So, and, and Sam says he just thinks it's a miracle. And there were a lot of people praying. So God still does that. Um, so we need to be praying for those things. We need to... Um, you know, I, Jenna's singing here. And Jenna, you know, had surgery. And they told her at one point she wouldn't be able to sing again. You know, it wasn't in our, us praying. But, I mean, God does those things. It's just a beautiful story. She's up here singing. And I'm thinking, man, you know... That's a miracle. God, God does that. He heals us, so we need to be praying. Uh, caring for one another, we'll talk about more next week or in a couple weeks, but we do need to take care of each other, even as Clifton referenced today. There's a lot of ways we do that, but one of the primary ways is just through giving. Um, the Bible says that we are to give 10% of what we have in the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't change that. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, he says to give sacrificially. So it could even be beyond that. 
Um, we have been blessed with a very generous church, which is why we are doing as well as we are. But I do encourage you to continue to give. You know, lately we've actually been low. We've been a little bit behind what we normally are. So as church family, I just tell you, what would God have you do? You know, would he have you give in a special way to help, help us? Or maybe you aren't giving regularly like you should be. Um, so we draw that to your attention and allow you to process that with the Lord, but encourage you to give and continue to give generously because that enables us to take care of those people that aren't able to take care of themselves and do more beyond the world, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks. A um, couple things I just want to end with today is, is one, the, the meeting places that they met with. It's kind of interesting. At first, they didn't have a meeting place. They were kind of traveling around. They were in this place called Solomon's Colonnade. It was just like a covering in the courtyard. And then later, they went to homes, usually in small groups. Traditionally, churches, often under persecution, have only been in small houses where they've been about 20, 30 people. They've even met undergrounds in catacombs. And then over periods of time, over a period of time, they were able to build buildings. And some of those buildings became these incredible cathedrals. Nothing wrong with those. those. Those can be very beautiful and point to the Lord. And some of them originally were built over time, so it, they, they spread out their finances. But then after a while, it became a, a showpiece. And then that became a problem where all the money was going to show off this building instead of taking care of the people. And so that's what we have to be careful of. The flip side of that is to have a building that doesn't have any resemblance of the God that we worship. You know, so we try not to make this you know, our, our cathedral, but we want it to be nice and we want it to look nice and take care of it and try to find the balance there. So, so those are the things that we do there. Also, it's interesting that Jesus would frequently take his people on trips out to the country and they would go up to the mountains to study and stuff. And that's why we have a lot of retreats. That's, we have references of that in the Bible. Jesus, that was one of the main things he did. He'd take people on field trips um, and he'd train them up in beautiful locations. So make sure you go to our men's retreats. Hopefully we got a women's retreat going and our family retreat is, is, is really a blast. Evangelism, notice that the main form of evangelism was that they were loving one another and it got contagious. That's why, you know, who are the 8 to 15 people in your life that are unchurched or unsaved? Just bring them here. And when they see how people love one another and interact with each other, bring them to your, your, your small group. Let them just see how much everybody loves each other and see what God is doing in their lives. And that, that will make the difference. Finally, have you noticed all the mentions on worship? There isn't any specific mention to formal worship, but we have numerous references in the Bible to singing and hymns all throughout the Old Testament, especially, and in the New Testament. And the Jews were known for their music. Because they mostly met in small and obscure places, they did not have organized worship as we do today. But they surely sang. They were singing all the time. And it's impossible to me to believe that they didn't have instruments like flutes and lyres and harps because they did. That was part of their culture. They carried those things with them everywhere. They had them all through the Old Testament and surely in the New Testament. Jesus never restricted that and we're told in heaven they'll be playing instruments in Revelation chapter 14 through 15. But in time, it evolved as the teaching in buildings. And they, they developed these great orchestras and choirs, right? Developed some of the most beautiful music that the world has ever known. And then it became a performance. You see how the balance is? It just, and, and so then it became a performance, and then it began to turn away. So that's always the balance. And I'm just so grateful for Mitch, because I think he just does a great job keeping our focus on the Lord through melody and the words. 
Um, and you know, we have special music occasionally in a children's choir at Christmas, but really our focus is on worshiping the Lord and keeping our, our minds on Him. Hey, we started off talking about the church leaving the building, so hopefully you can see that our church will soon leave the building and still be the church, right? We're still the church. In fact, you represent the church wherever you are. And this building is not the church you are. So prepare to show the world your love for God and your love for them. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for this time, opportunity to talk about you and about what you've done in organizing us as a church. You've given us... It's cool to me, Lord, to see that in your sovereignty and in your great wisdom, you've given us a sense of direction um, for leadership without, while still giving us a lot of freedom to adapt it to who we are and where we're at and what we're doing in our lives. So we thank you for that. And we pray that we would all uh, walk closely to you and all of us find ways that we can get involved and be more part of this church family. Amen.